0: Well, we're, we're switching it up a little bit, the, the order. Uh, so we are going to observe the Lord's Supper at the end of the sermon, but, but the sermon's coming first because the sermon is really going to prepare the way uh, and set the stage for our observance of the Lord's Supper. And so we have these little cups kind of in the back and on the sides. If you didn't get one um, and you are wanting to partake of communion with us, um, you can grab uh, that at any point between now and the end of the service, uh, but so we're continuing our, our sermon series through the Psalms, and so last week we looked at Psalm chapter one, uh, and and the title was two ways to live, and we saw there's the way of the righteous and there's the way of the wicked, and, and these two paths are walked. Uh, depending on who you are receiving instruction from. And so the the blessed one or the happy one, the the path of the righteous, was walked by those who heeded the instruction of the Lord, who meditated on the law or the instruction of the Lord day and night, whereas the path of the wicked were those who rejected the Lord and followed the counsel that was godless, right? The the counsel and, and the advice and the instruction that came from those Uh, who rejected God. And so those were the two ways. And the happy way was the righteous way because that is the way that God created us to live. Well, we're gonna look at Psalm chapter 32 this morning uh, and the title is the exact same, Two Ways to Live. And so we're gonna see, if you have your Bibles, you can can turn to Psalm 32. The the words are gonna be up in in just a minute when we read them. But just at the outset, Psalm 32 has a a two-path structure. There's two ways to live. And so we're gonna see in Psalm 32... The two paths are the path of silence versus the path of confession. And so these paths are related specifically to how you deal with sin, your sins, how you deal with them. You either walk a path of silence in regard to your sin, or you walk the path of confession, acknowledgement, bringing forth of your sin. And so those are the two paths that we're going to see. And this psalm, as we look at it, I, I, no matter where you've come from and why you're here, this psalm is applicable to everyone here because every single person here has within their members the reality that the living nature of sin, sin is a universal individual reality. And so if you're here this morning, you are walking one of two paths in regard to your sin. Being a sinner is part of every human's DNA. It's who we are. That's just the reality of life in a fallen world. There are no exceptions. And so when it comes to these two ways and how we deal with sin, we either walk the path of silence or we walk the path of confession. Now, one way, the way of confession we'll see, leads to happiness or blessedness, and the other leads to despair. One way leads to fellowship with God and fellowship with others. The other way leads to alienation from God and, and ultimately enmity with others. One way leads to forgiveness, while the other leads to a remaining in sin and despair. And so just like Psalm 1, this psalm begins with with the blessed one. The happy person is the one who learns to walk with the Lord and experiences the joy of forgiveness. And so that's what we're going to see. The happiness of men consists only in the forgiveness of sins, for nothing can be more terrible than to have God for our enemy. It says one church father, nor, he continues, can God be gracious to us in any other way than by pardoning our transgressions. And so let's look at Psalm 32. You can follow along in your Bible if you have it. I'm going to read the whole psalm and then I'm going to pray for us and then we'll look at, at the verses together. But Psalm 32, one of the penitential psalms attributed to David, you can follow along as I read. Psalm 32 beginning in verse 1. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Verse 6, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You, Lord, are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and a bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy. All you upright in heart. Let me pray for us before we look at these verses. Father, for those of us who have come to know you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we know and have experienced the joy of forgiveness. And so as we look through this passage, through this psalm, would you would you convict us? Would you encourage us? Would you even enable us to be those who are quick to confess and repent of our sin? And in doing so, would we receive the free forgiveness that has come to us through Jesus Christ? And Lord, for those who who don't know the joy of forgiveness, but who continually try to deal with sin on their own, would you convict them and show them the hope that comes through Christ alone? In whose name I pray, amen. Well, there's four passages or four sections here that we're going to work through uh, in verses 1 through 11. So we're going to see first point, we're going to see the joy of forgiveness. There's going to be verses 1 and 2. Then second point, the necessity of confession. We're going to see verses 3 through 5. The urgency of confession, verses 6 and 7. And then the result of confession, verses 8 through 11. So we'll work through those quickly as we look at this psalm. So let's start there, verses 1 and 2. The first point, the joy of forgiveness. Blessed is the one, or happy is the man whose transgression is forgiven, the, the one against whom the Lord counts no Iniquity, And so at the outset of the psalm, much like in Psalm 1, the point is established that happiness or blessing or joy comes from having one's sins forgiven. This means that the blessed man, the happy man, is the one who's experienced God's mercy. God is merciful, and that mercy is expressed in the forgiveness of sins. God forgives sins. And and to have one's sins forgiven by God is the state of joy of blessedness, of happiness. This, this is the foundation of the gospel of the Christian faith. The experience of the forgiveness of sins is one of the highest heights of Christian experience. In fact, that's why Jesus came. If you don't understand the forgiveness of sins and you don't understand why Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, had to become a man and die, be crucified on a cross. He did so so that people like you and people like me could experience true pardon, true cleansing. That's why he came. One commentator notes, the highest and best part of a happy life consists in this, that God forgives a man's guilt. Not only that, but then receives him graciously into his favor. That is the joy of being a Christian. I mean, look again at verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. This this word transgression, this is a willful violation. It's a cutting across, intentional cutting across of a command, a an intentional, willful violation. One, one commentator calls it open rebellion. If you have young children, you know exactly what this looks like. Don't do that. They lock eyes with you, and what do they do? Exactly that that you just said. That's transgression. There's a clear boundary that is transgressed. That's the that's the word here. And it continues, not only that blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, but blessed is the one whose sin is covered. That that's, it's not there anymore. It's con it's concealed. It's, it's been covered. And he says, this is a source, the source of blessedness and happiness. And, and so for someone to experience these things changes things to experience true forgiveness always changes the person who's forgiven. I mean, think about this dynamic in human relationships. Again, as a parent of young kids, there's not many things more humbling as a dad than to see how freely and easily my kids offer forgiveness, whether it's to one another, whether it's to their their parents. And most of the time, they really mean it. Most of the time, they literally forget the offense hours or sometimes even minutes later. And the relationship is restored. I mean, that, that, that is how this forgiveness thing changes people. It happens and it changes things. And in, in those instances, when my children, when, when I've, I've sinned against them and I've asked for their forgiveness and they say, of course, Daddy, I forgive you. Let me show you this, this toy that I got. When, when that happens, at least for me, the issuing of true forgiveness, it, it doesn't embolden me then and say, okay, good, I'm glad I can sin against you more because you're so easy to forgive. That's not how I respond. Instead, it endears me to them and it drives me to love them all the more. I don't want to take advantage of their forgiveness. And so, so true forgiveness, when it's, when it's expressed and it's received, it changes things. And it's not just parents and children. They're, hopefully there's, there's cases in all of your lives with husbands and wives and friends and coworkers and, and other human relationships where, where forgiveness happens. And when it does, my point is that when genuine forgiveness is offered in the aftermath of, of an offense, it's a powerful thing and it changes people. And so that's on the human level, but the astounding thing here in verse 1 is that it's not forgiveness that's been extended between two human parties. It's a forgiveness that's been extended to sinful people by the Lord himself. God forgives weak and sinful transgressors. I mean, look at verse 2. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. That's a state of blessing. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 130. And Martin Luther, one of the, the Protestant reformers, wrote a hymn on Psalm 130. But, but in Psalm 130, the psalmist asks, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? Rhetorical question to answer, no one. If the Lord counted or marked our iniquities, we could not stand. We could not be in fellowship with Him. We could not know Him. But, Psalm 130 continues, With you there's forgiveness that you may be feared. And so when it comes to forgiveness of sins, the subject of the offense is not a spouse or a child. It's the Lord himself who, lest we forget, Isaiah 6 refers to him as holy, holy, holy. This is astounding. It's astounding because it's not like we're forgiven because the Lord knows that we're going to get it right next time. It's not forgiveness with with, with stipulations. It's astounding because we're not forgiven because what happened... We happen to catch the Lord on a good day, in a good mood. You know, sometimes you're like, well, I can't, I can't tell them what I did now because they're in a really bad mood. I've got I to gotta wait till they're happy, right? That's not the case here. It's not like we've we got to confess and go to the Lord when He's in a good mood. That's not why we're forgiven. And it's astounding because we're not forgiven because we're not as bad as we could be. Or He doesn't say, well, you're not that bad, so I will forgive you. Or you're not as bad as these other, your neighbors, so, so I will forgive you. That's not why He forgives us. It's astounding because God's mercy is the only reason that you're forgiven. God's mercy is the only reason that I have hope for forgiveness. Nothing else. Sinners receive mercy because God shows mercy to sinners. It's astounding. God forgives sinners. God is mercy filled, abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger. Do you remember Exodus chapter 34? Moses is meeting with the Lord. And in verses six and seven, Moses wants wants to to see and behold the Lord, and, and the Lord passes by. And this is what the Lord says to Moses He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is our God. This is the blessing that comes from the gospel. Forgiveness of sins. This is the blessing that comes by way of confession. Forgiveness of sins is is an unending source of joy for the Christian. But it only comes by way of confession. Look there at verses 3 through 5. The the next point, the necessity of confession. Now the transition from from verse 2 to verse 3 is important. So if you look there at verse 2 still talking about the blessed man, and verse 2 says that the blessed man is the one in whose spirit there's no deceit. Now, I think that he says that because someone who has a deceitful spirit is someone who, who wants to hide things, someone who doesn't want the truth to be known. And, and in this context, when it comes to sin, deceit prevents confession. So someone who's deceitful, someone who, who, who has deceit in the spirit, they don't want anyone to know about his or her sin. Therefore, hiding one's sin becomes the enemy of confession, and so the one who's been forgiven is the one in whom there is no deceit. Do you see the connection? It'll be more clear in, in later verses. But, but this is the same thing that John would say in 1 John chapter 1, where he says, to say I have no sin is to deceive myself. Why? Because it's not true. And he continues later in that verse, in, to say that I have not sinned, not only is it to deceive yourself, but it's actually to make God a liar, who has declared that, that all have sinned. And so, so we, we don't deceive ourselves and pretend like it's not there. And so verses 3 and five, three through 5, we're going to make clear that, that hiding one's sin is a barrier to the blessedness of forgiveness, which is why confession is necessary. Confession is absolutely necessary. I would go so far as to say that forgiveness doesn't happen apart from confession. God doesn't just sit up in heaven and say, okay, forgiveness to anyone indiscriminately. No, forgiveness is, is conveyed and applied to those who confess and repent. And so confession is necessary. And so one who hides their sin does so to their own detriment. They're not blessed or happy. They can't see because their sin is a weight that's ever upon them. If you're familiar with the, the Pilgrim's Progress, Christian at the beginning, right, he has the burden on his back. He's like, what am I going to do with this burden? It's weighing him down. It's his sin. He's read, he's read his book and it tells him he's a sinner and, and he, he can't get it off of him. It isn't until he goes to the cross and he sees the, the sepulcher, the, the tomb, that, that the, the burden rolls off his back. But it's the weight of sin that he feels. There are few things, one commentator says, that are as troubling and crippling as guilty fears over unconfessed sin. And that's what verse, th- verses 3 and 4, look at 3 and 4. This is the crippling feeling that the psalmist is describing. For, verse 3, for when I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my, mo- my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. This is the effect of unconfessed sin. It, it gnaws at you constantly. There, there, there's guilt and shame. There's this weight, a constant gnawing at you when, when your sin is just hidden it just eats away. And, and honestly, Christians and non-Christians can feel the power of conviction, the weight of sin. There are times that non-Christians can feel the weight of sin. But there's times when Christians feel the weight of sin. And in both cases, the God of all mercy stands ready to pardon. But He only does so on account of confession or repentance. He does stand ready to pardon. He does pardon those who repent of their sins and who confess. This is what 1 John 1 would also say. If we confess our sins, God is what? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so so we have sin that that weighs us down. We have a God who's who's willing and and able and actually delights to forgive. And so the million-dollar question is, well, why would anyone not confess? seems like a pretty simple solution, doesn't it? Just confess. It's that easy. Well, David didn't find it that easy. And if you're a Christian, you know it's not that easy. I know it's not that easy. There's, a, there's an ease with which sin can be hidden. Anyone who's been a Christian for any amount of time knows that shame and guilt right, with, with sin, but, but when you want to confess it, you don't want to do it because it's painful and it's ugly. It's embarrassing. There's an outright difficulty to confessing, whether to God or someone else. Confession is difficult. And the nature of sin is such that it drives us from confession. But the last thing that your sin would want you to do would to get it forgiven. That's the nature of sin. No, no, no. God won't forgive you. You've done too much this time. You, you've, done, you've gone too far. Do so you think He's really going to forgive you again? Right? This is the nature of sin. The aftermath of sin is that it, 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 it encloses you and says, no, 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 don't, don't let anyone know. You're too bad. They'll treat you differently. They don't like you. And so the last thing you want to do in the aftermath of sin is to confess. And so it's difficult. But we see in, in light of verses 3 through 5, the difficulty of confessing is far surpassed by the difficulties that come from not confessing. So hear me say confession is hard, but it's much easier. It's much harder not to confess. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. This silence is the opposition of confession. So here's where we see the two ways emerging. One way that we see in verse 3 is silence. I kept silent. He's, he's, he's referring to, he's keeping silent in, in reference to his sin, his transgression. And his silence, instead of relief, it brought more pain, more difficulty. And in fact, it's not clear whether he's talking about spiritual pain, his bones wasting away, or maybe he's actually, some people think he's talking about actual physical pain. And there are plenty of cases where where sin has caused physical effects, and it wastes away the body physically. In either case, the silence, the failure to confess, is accompanied by pain and agony. And this is the point, isn't it? Isn't the silence in relation to our sin often pursued for the purpose of peace? I'm not going to confess because it's going to go away eventually. Or if I don't confess, no one will ever know. It'll be forgotten. But the reality is that it actually gets worse. Unconfessed sin gets worse. One commentator says it's, it's a festering sore. And that's what he says that David learns here, that unconfessed sin is a festering sore. And so one way of dealing with sin is silence. Silence. But silence doesn't deal with sin. His groaning under the weight of sin continued all day long. Verse 4, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Now notice it's not just his unconfessed sin that's causing him trouble. It's the Lord himself, right? It's your hand, Lord, that's heavy upon me. It's as if the Lord himself is pressing down upon David. And so one scholar says God's not going to let David get away with his sin, not for long anyway. Anyway. He continues, God is very patient, desiring that his people come to their senses and seek forgiveness. But if they refuse, he has ways to bring them to that point. And I think that's where David has experienced the hand of the Lord. So so in this case, David's turmoil, it's all internal. The Lord has brought him to a sense, to his senses through this, this psychological turmoil, this weight. But sometimes the Lord brings secret sins into light for the world to see and exposes the sinner. Which has often been the case in the lives of Christians throughout the centuries. There's scandals galore because Christians are living in unrepentant sin. And the Lord is going to do what it takes to expose the hidden sin of his children. And so whether it happens without publicly exposed, whether it happens by public exposition, either way, the Lord brings his people to that point where confession is the only way out. You're confronted. You have no other excuse. All the lies have been found out. And you say, I did it i'm sorry right? the lord will take you to that point it's better to to confess now but in verse four david says his strength was dried up as by the heat of summer i mean i thought about all the all the plants and all the grass all the money that we've poured into plants and grass up until a few weeks ago when we got lots and lots of rain but but all of it was dead the summer heat scorched it and it's weak there's no strength. It's all dried up. And, and that's the picture David says. As he kept silent, he became like that dead brown grass. And this is the state of the person who remains silent about their sin, the person in whom there is deceit concerning sin. What a different picture for that we saw last week in Psalm 1. The one planted beside streams of water is, is fruitful, is blossoming. It gives, gives off its fruit in its season. This is the opposite image. And this is the image of the one who remains silent. And so this inner turmoil brings David to his senses. And in verse 5, we see the turning point. And we see the necessity of confession. Look at verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Astounding comment, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Do you see how, how astounding that is? It's not fair. It's too easy. But that, that was the experience of David. I confessed. Notice the repetition of the words in verse 5 as compared to verse 1. Verse 5, I acknowledge my sins to you. You did not cover my iniquity. I said I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord. That's verse 5. But in verse 1, blessed is one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. As the one against the Lord counts no iniquity. So these, the same terms are used. And in this comparison, we have the mathematics or the equation of confession. And so acknowledging sin leads to them being covered. Not covering them leads to them being covered. Confessing transgressions leads to them being forgiven. Do you see that? Do you see how that works? This means that when I attempt to deal with my own sin through silence... When I attempt to conceal and hide it, it isn't dealt with and it remains to be seen. It isn't hidden, it isn't forgiven. That's the way of silence. And when it comes to your sins, silence doesn't deal with it. The equation is I uncover, God covers. I confess, God removes. I acknowledge, and God forgives. That's how it works. If we want it dealt with, we want our sin dealt with, we, we bring it out and let God deal with it. It, it. It's like trash day. If you miss trash day, your trash is going to build up. It's going to get stinky. It's going to get really stinky depending on how much food you're eating. If you want it dealt with, you, you don't keep it in the back or by the side of the house. You, you bring it out. And all your neighbors see the overpiling trash. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe, we, maybe we're slobs this weekend and everyone's going to see it. But when that trash cup truck comes, if you have a good trash truck driver like we do, it's all taken care of. And when he leaves, there's no trace of your trash anymore. What the psalmist is saying, if you want your sin dealt with, you don't hide it. You don't just keep it in the back because it's going to start stinking and then everyone's going to know. And so you bring it out and the Lord deals with it. That's the equation. That's the paradox of pardon. You bring it out and the Lord deals with it. If you want it covered, then you better uncover it. When I do confess, when I don't attempt to hide it, when I do acknowledge my sin, then and only then is my sin dealt with, covered, forgiven. This is the way of confession. And it's obvious to put it plainly, a failure to confess my sin is a failure to trust God to deal with my sin in the ways he's promised to do it. If I'm not confessing my sin, it's, it's because I don't trust God to deal with me according to the way that he's promised, which is I will pardon their sin. I will remember their guilt no more. That is what God has promised to do to those, how, how he promises to treat those who come to him humbly and contrite, broken over sin. We see that keeping silent about our sin is ultimately because we think we can deal with it, which couldn't be further from the truth. When we do that, it actually prohibits God from showing mercy, which is what he gladly does and, in fact, loves to do. God loves to show mercy. God delights in showing mercy to sinners like you and like me. We'll look next there, verses 6 and 7, the urgency of confession. Therefore, let everyone who's godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. That's the rush of great waters. They shall not reach the one who prays to the Lord. Verse 7, you're my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. So the psalmist here in verse 6 and 7, having been through what he's just been through, having seen the necessity of confession and, and having experienced the forgiveness of sins, being freed from this weight of unconfessed sin, he then turns his counsel towards others. He says, hey, all of you, listen up. Pray while you still can. Offer prayer to God while, while he may still be found. And in this context, this prayer, it's not, it's not the Lord's prayer. It's simply a prayer of confession. Pray and confess your sins while the Lord is still locatable. Right? This, in light of verses 1 through 5 about the role of confession versus the danger of silence, that the rush of great waters here, that the dangers in mind must be the dangers that that result from having sin fester and go unconfessed. And so his point, his goal in verse 6, is to convince people to pray to the Lord in regard to their sin, to confess. He wants to instruct others, confess your sins to the Lord. Because in confession there is forgiveness. But also notice verse 7, we see in confession there's Security. There's security, you're, you're a refuge for me. Whereas a failure to convey, confess leaves one guilty, ashamed, afraid of being found out, er, experiencing inner ter- turmoil and sometimes even physical ailments, praying to the Lord when he may be found leads to protection, forgiveness, a conviction of peace with God. We confess, we're forgiven, and that changes everything. There, there's an urgency in these verses as, as the psalmist turns outward. And the urgency is because the implication of verse 6 is that there is a time where the Lord may not be found. Isn't that the implication? Pray while he may be found. Well, that means that there may be a time he may not be found. So what does he mean? It's not to say that sometimes the Lord isn't around. Because let's be clear, to be God is to be everywhere all the time. That's one of the attributes of God. But the point behind this call to pray while the Lord may be found is that when sin is pressing down, when the weight of guilt is heavy... As painful, as, un- as uncomfortable as that is, the weight and the guilt is actually God's grace driving you to confess it, to bring it into the light. And so, an awareness of your sin is evidence of God's mercy, and it ought, it ought to lead you to confess your sin. If the Lord is, is weighing down on you, if the hand- his hand is heavy upon you, that means he is waiting for you to confess. And I think the point is, sometimes, and this is a scary thought, there may come a day when the Lord may not be found. Think about what it would be like to be unaware or unaffected by your sin. Think about having no remorse, no guilt, no shame for for any sin. At that point, the Lord is nowhere to be found because you don't care. And you're not going to be on the path of blessing or happiness. And so David is telling anyone who will listen to him, don't don't waste your guilt. Don't waste your shame. Don't let it fester and don't let it go unconfessed. The Lord is gracious and he's forgiving. Why not go to him in prayer? Go to him. When you feel guilty, go to him. When you feel shame, go to him. There's an urgency. Finally, verses 8 through 11. There's the result of confession. There verses 8 through 11. These are the final verses, and there's a clear shift. So verses 6 through 7, they're clearly from the psalmist to the Lord for the benefit of his listeners. But when we get to verse 8, there's a voice that could be either the psalmist or it could be the Lord. You see there, verse 8? I will instruct you and teach you. Well, that could be the psalmist saying to his readers, I'm going to instruct you and teach you. Or it could be the Lord saying to the psalmist for the benefit of the hearers, I will instruct you and teach you. And the reason I think it's the psalmist now hearing a, a word from the Lord, I think it's now the Lord speaking... Is because verses 8 through 11 highlight the relational dynamic between the Lord and His forgiven people. And so confession, the result of confession, is restored relationship. And I think that's what the Lord is saying. Here's the result of, of when you go through this process, when you cry out to the Lord when He may be found, when you receive forgiveness, there is restoration. In verse 8, the relationship is now changed. I will instruct you. I'm going to teach you in the way you should go. I'm going to counsel you with my eye upon you. This is the relationship between God and forgiven sinners. There's, there's peace and there's a willingness to, to dispense wisdom and counsel. There's, there's an intimacy here. And this is the result of confession. The result of confession is that a man or a woman who deserves separation and punishment because of their sin instead gets a friend like no other. This man or woman who deserves separation, alienation, is reconciled to God and has protection and comfort. This is the Lord, in verse 8, comforting the forgiven sinner. In this reality, this, this restored relationship comes only after confession. Therefore, this, 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 this drive to confess, and we ought to be driven to conf- confess, God's people ought to pursue instruction and wisdom of the Lord and ought to submit to him. So as as a result of God forgiving our sins and, and welcoming us back, we ought to then say, I want to honor you. I want to follow your instructions. Which gets back to Psalm 1 in the way of the righteous who delights in the instruction of the Lord. And so the forgiven sinner is someone who willingly submits to the Lord and follows him as opposed to one who continues silent about their sin, continuing in unrepentant sin. The reality is that God's kindness leads us to repentance. The mercy of God that reconciles us to Him is the same mercy that drives us to live holy lives for Him. We confess and we seek to honor Him. The alternative, according to verse 9, and here's, a, here's a, a, a picture for us of what it looks like to be stubborn and not to confess and not to heed the instruction of the Lord. It's, it's to be like a horse or a mule without understanding which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near to you. So the horse and the mule, they're, they're stubborn beasts. I've never had one, but, but I take people's word for it. They must be forced to do what you want them to do. They have to be forced to, or, or, or they have to be convinced. Hey, hey, I'll give, you, I'll give you this. Follow me. Come this way. They're self-willed. They don't easily cooperate with the will of their master. Verse 9 says, don't be like them. Don't be a stubborn horse or mule who has no concern for the desire of his master. Instead, have understanding. Stay near the Lord. Don't stray. Don't force the Lord to use bit and bridle. Submit to him. Heed his instructions. Because he will use bit and bridle if he must. I think that's what led David to a realization in the first place. It's the Lord's heavy hand upon him. At that, and the point of the psalm is to convey the lesson, which is don't go through that. That's what the psalmist wants you to know. Confess your sin. Don't remain silent. Don't let sin go unconfessed. Instead, confess your sin. Be restored to a right relationship with the Lord. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's eager to forgive. So confess and receive His instruction. And we see finally in verse 10, the results of these two ways to live. And they're, they couldn't be more different. The experience of, of those who walk these two paths... Verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked. Many are those who walk on the path of unconfessed sin. But alternative path, the path of confession, steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. This is the difference between the two ways to live. The wicked and the righteous are contrasted. And here the wicked one is the one who conceals or hides or ignores his sin, which is the path towards many sorrows. Whereas one who confesses is a path that's surrounded by the steadfast love of the Lord. And this one, the righteous one, is the one who trusts in the Lord, which in this context, is, is, it means to trust in the Lord, to deal with his or her sins, and confesses freely and regularly. And the psalm closes, verse 11, a call to rejoice and live freely in the mercy of the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, you upright in heart which is a fitting close to a psalm that that began rejoicing in the joy or the blessedness of forgiveness. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, he closes. Let me just, before we transition to observing of communion, because what what a great psalm to lead us to the Lord's table, to remember what's happened for the believer in the death of Jesus Christ. Before we do that, I just want to close with a very simple point of application. Which, which hopefully if you've been listening, even surface level listening, you ought to know that the application is simply this, confess your sin. That, that's how you apply this passage. Be one who confesses. Not to a priest, not to your pastor, but to the Lord. Confess your sin. Now three sub-application points. I'm not going to let you get away with just that one. But but three ways we confess our sin. Confess your sin at the outset of the Christian life. Confess your sin for the entirety of your Christian life. And confess your sin to the Lord and to others. So confess your sin. So at the outset of the Christian life. So, so if you're not a Christian, the application for you is to forsake your sin and trust in Jesus. Right. If, if, you, if you are still dead in sins and trespasses, you don't have joy. You don't have happiness. You don't have a right relationship with God, which is why you were created. He created you to know Him and to be in fellowship with Him and His people. And if you you haven't come to Jesus through faith and repentance, you don't have forgiveness of sins. And so your application is to confess your sins. There is an initial repentance that marks the beginning of any Christian life. And so confess your sin. Jesus died to pay for sins. And so trusting in Jesus is how you apply the passage this morning if you're not a Christian. You trust in Him, you, you cry out to Him, you pray to Him, you confess to Him. And He receives you and forgives you. And so, so you confess your sin at the outset of your Christian life. But if you are a Christian, you're not off the confession hook. It doesn't happen one time and you don't have to address it again. No, confession, repentance is something that ought to happen as long as you have sin in your life. And if you're a Christian, if you don't know it, you have sin in your life now. And the way that you deal with it, the way that I deal with it, is by confessing. And so we confess our sins for the entirety of our Christian lives from start to finish. In fact, I mentioned it earlier, 1 John 1, nine is a verse that we sometimes use in evangelism, but it was written to Christians. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us, forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a verse that John writes to Christians. And so confession is something that Christians ought to do. And so all of life is to be filled with confession and repentance. As, is, as often as is necessary, Christian, confess your sin. Confess it to the Lord. Confess it to others. In fact, one Puritan author, Thomas Watson, has a book called Repentance. And he described this idea of, of continual re- repentance or confession. He, he describes it as, quote, The wound which will bleed until we're healed to sin no more in glory. And, and so as long as we are in this life... Our, our wound is going to be bleeding and, and, and we're going to have to confess and repent forever until we're with the Lord and glory because there and only there will we be healed and will our wound be healed to bleed no more. And so confess your sin. The reality of life in this fallen world is that as long as you're a Christian living in these earthly bodies, we are going to fight and wage war against our flesh. Which can be discouraging, except for the fact that we have a God who's gracious and merciful. Who's promised to forgive us our sins. And that's the good news of confession. We'll never be given a cold shoulder or a stiff arm. God forgives those who come to him. And so, let us confess now until we are with him in glory. And then finally, confess your sins to the Lord and to others. And so, so all of this context here is a confession between the individual and the Lord. Which which is the primary Uh, audience for our confession is the lord himself however there's a confession that that works itself out horizontally as well we confess our sins to one another there's plenty that could be a whole sermon of of the role of confession to one another in the new testament it's part of loving one another and bearing one another's burdens it comes from confessing and when we live in the light and bring our sins out in the open before others we have fellowship with one another and so we confess to others Well, let me pray for us and then we will transition to observing the Lord's Supper.